Uh, Would you all pray with me? Gracious and living God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to turn our eyes to Jesus. Not only that we might see him, but that today in his word we might hear him. And therefore, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people say. It happens every Christmas and Easter. Sometimes it happens on other Sundays, but it always happens every Christmas and Easter. And it's, and it's nothing particular about me. Every pastor I know can tell the same stories of the sorts of people who linger around after Silent Night has been sung. Or after the resurrection, Alleluia, has been acclaimed. And then, as though they want to show the the burn mark where the lightning has struck, they approach the preacher to share how the good news that day hit them in the brokenness of their lives. Every Christmas and Easter. He approached me at the end of the 7 o'clock Christmas Eve service here, just before the pandemic. I was standing down there along the altar rail. Smoke was still rising from the wick of my candle, I felt the warm, soft wax on his fingers as I shook his hand and said, Merry Christmas. He blushed and mumbled the season's greeting back to me, clearly second-guessing his impulse to come forward. He had salt and pepper hair and razor burn on cheeks that were deeply creased and made him look older than I guessed him to be. The hood of his red Patagonia parka was pulled up over his head, probably, I suppose, to hide tears running down his face like water on a shower wall. I'm Jason, I said. I'm one of the preachers here. I know, he said. That would be quite the outfit if you weren't the preacher. I laughed and then let the silence that followed fester, waiting for him to to show me whatever glad wound God had left behind on him. Your message, he said, the words catching in his throat. Your message tonight made me want to become a Christian. I've learned to expect people like him on Easter and Christmas, but I hadn't expected him to say that. The message made you want to become a Christian. Well, what's stopping you? I said, we can seal the deal right here and now. And he shook his head. Hard, he shook his head. As much as he wanted to become a Christian, he did not want to become a Christian. What's stopping me? He asked. I've got a dresser drawer full of 30-day sobriety coins, but not a single other one. I've got a wife who doesn't know I lost my job. I just drive around all day, he said, and I drink in my car. I've got a son who won't talk to me for good reason, and I've got a father whom I've never forgiven for walking out. I didn't say anything. I waited for him to flesh out the problem. Don't you see, preacher? He said. 
Don't you see? It's all I can do to get out of bed every day. It felt like walking on broken glass just to be here tonight. If I become a Christian, then I'll have to commit myself, won't I? I'll have to commit to getting sober and telling the truth to my wife and patching things up with my son and my father. To to be a Christian, I'll have to commit to doing those things. And, And I've already lived too many lies, he said. The truth is, I know I can't do it all. Like I said, he said, your message tonight, it made me want to be a Christian. But to be a Christian, I'll have to promise to do those other things too, won't I? And I looked at him, and I opened my mouth, and I flubbed it. I flubbed it like like a a gymnast who can't stick the landing. What I said to him was it, it completely undid whatever I'd said earlier that made him want to be a Christian. I said, well, maybe so, but you don't have to do it all tonight. That wasn't a, a yes, exactly. Yes, in order to be a Christian, you're compelled to get clean, to, to confess to your missus, to, to reconcile with your son and, and forgive your father. I, I, I didn't say yes, exactly. I didn't fail that badly. But I did not give him the single syllable, solitary word he desperately needed to hear and that just happens to be the God's honest truth. As I recall it, I said a great many things to him right there. Pastoral things, perhaps. Compassionate things, probably. Empathetic things, I bet. And so I know from sheer word count that I did not clearly and emphatically, with an urgency that made plain, this is a matter of life and death on which the gospel itself is at stake. I did not say, no! No, you don't have to clean up your act in order to be a Christian. No, you don't have to confess and repent in order to be a Christian. No, you don't have to reconcile and forgive in order to be a Christian. No! No, you don't have to need, you don't need to have any of that to your credit to be a Christian. In fact, in fact, all you need to have is nothing. Nothing. I know it because the Bible tells me so. Today. It's likely not your most beloved memory verse, and I doubt any of you have it cross-stitched and framed on your wall, but I could make a case that verse 3 in our text today is one of the most consequential record-scratch mic-drop verses in the entire Bible. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. I mean, you, you might not want Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. You might not want that stenciled on your throw pillows or tattooed on your granddaughter's arm. But it's dynamite all the same. The same could be said for the loaded comment Paul makes three verses later. The leaders in Jerusalem added nothing to my message. Just to review. Everywhere the Apostle Paul journeyed, preaching the good news of grace alone and Christ alone, through faith alone. Everywhere he went, false teachers followed close behind, claiming apostolic authority for themselves and teaching a different gospel. Rather than proclamation about what God has done for you, free of charge in Jesus Christ, the false teachers issued exhortation about what you must do for God by following the obedient example of Jesus Christ. 
The false teachers muddled the gospel with the law into a kind of gospel, a Christ plus commandment-keeping gospel that, as Paul says in chapter 1, is not only no gospel at all, it's anathema, God-damnable. The false teachers compelled non-Jewish believers to undergo circumcision, therefore, because circumcision was the mark of a life lived under the law. Paul responds to the false teacher's aspersions by asserting that his gospel is the only gospel, for his gospel was taught to him by the risen Christ over a period of three years during a self-imposed exile in Arabia. My gospel is authentic because Jesus Christ himself gave the gospel to me, Paul declares at the end of chapter 1. And here at the top of chapter 2 today, Paul insists that the other apostles, James and, and Peter, they affirmed the authenticity of Paul's gospel message when Paul went by revelation to Jerusalem 14 years into his gospel mission. Affirmed by the other apostles in Jerusalem, but also endorsed by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul takes Barnabas with him to Jerusalem. Barnabas was a Jewish convert to faith in Christ. Barnabas was also an eyewitness to the phenomenon of Gentile converts receiving the Holy Spirit when they heard Paul's gospel and placed their trust in Christ and his grace. So you see the, the layers of Paul's rebuttal. My gospel is the only gospel. He says, it was delivered straight from the lips of the risen Jesus. It was affirmed by his other apostles. And just ask Barnabas, it was endorsed by the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe me, Paul says today, if you don't believe me, if you don't trust my gospel is the gospel, here's Titus. Titus is a Gentile. Go ahead and check under the hood. I took him with me to Jerusalem when I laid my gospel before the other apostles, and they did not compel him to be circumcised, nor did they add anything to my message. See, the the point Paul is trying to make is not that Jesus Christ is enough without circumcision, but, 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 but later on down the road we may have to add something else. Jesus plus a a, a contrite, repentant heart, say, or Jesus plus personal piety, or Jesus and social justice activism. No. Paul's point is that Jesus Christ plus nothing else whatsoever for all time and in every circumstance. Christ plus nothing is the good news for you. And therefore, to be a Christian requires only that you come to Christ with nothing. Nothing. In his preface to his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, the theologian Karl Barth writes that a true understanding of Paul's apostolic message will always verge on the precipice of heresy. It will always verge on the precipice of heresy. Because, Bart says, the gospel announces a radical departure from and a seismic rupture with every form of religion. Religion concerns our journey to God and and, and what we do for God. And the gospel is something else entirely. It's the announcement of God's journey to us. It's the promise of what God has done for us. A right understanding of Paul's gospel will always verge on the precipice of heresy. 
Bart could have had in mind these two verses today. They did not compel Titus to be circumcised. They added nothing to my message. You see, if you don't find yourself teetering on the precipice of heresy with your toes curled over the edge, then you still don't understand Paul's gospel. Because if the message has landed, then your inevitable next questions will verge on the verboten. For example, the gospel should provoke you to ask, does this mean there's nothing we must do? Or the even better question, does this mean we can do whatever we want? If the gospel's brought you to the precipice of questions like that, then the true gospel has gotten a hold of you. Jerry Rood is on the faculty at Wheaton College. He's a world-renowned evangelist and a widely respected scholar of C.S. Lewis. In 2017, Jerry Root was invited to deliver a series of lectures at Utah State. During the final lecture, in a crowded auditorium of Mormons and skeptical undergraduates, someone asked Jerry Root how a man, Jerry Root, how a man as smart as him could be a Christian. Without even pausing to consider the question, as though he, he knew the truth of it in his bones and, and carried it with him every day, Without pausing, Jerry Root replied, I'm a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I'm a Christian because I know enough of my goodness to distrust it. I don't think I could live without forgiveness and without the grace of God, he answered. And in the audience that night was a young mother named Katie Langston, who'd grown up in a conservative Mormon family, but who was at the the breaking point of religious exhaustion. All the oughts and shoulds of the Mormon religion, she said, all the the righteousness-seeking and and worthiness-accruing and commandment-keeping, it had all brought her to spiritual despair, she said. And Langston describes hearing Jerry Root's response as a conversion experience. In her memoir, Sealed, in which she shares her journey out of Mormonism and into the gospel of grace, Langston writes, That was it. Dr. Ruth's reply was a simple one, but I'd never known anyone to admit such a thing out loud. It was the cardinal rule of Mormon spirituality, be ye therefore perfect. And if you couldn't be perfect, you must do all you can to fix it. Try harder. Get absolution. Pray more. You didn't name your brokenness. You battled it. Sought to excise it with every ounce of energy you possessed. To admit powerlessness in the face of your deficiencies was to let your deficiencies win. And yet here was a man, mature and accomplished, who knew the devastation of human brokenness, but didn't despair over it. He had a lifeline, he said. Forgiveness. And the grace of God. Could the Christian gospel possibly be that simple? He admitted his deficiencies in the present tense. He still had them. He hadn't eradicated them. But somehow he was whole anyway. You could see it in the way he spoke of his flaws. He neither relished them nor felt shame about them that he sought to hide them. It's not this easy. It can't be this easy, I thought. But even as I did, I knew it was. The last bulwarks of my resistance to Christ crumbled. 
I could not have anticipated the disruption this would cause to my life and my sense of place in the world, but it didn't matter. All that mattered was that I, was no long, that I no longer needed to be other than who I was. My heart sang out, yes, I'm deficient, I'm devastated, I'm human, at least. With each breath turning myself over to the one who could make of me what I had never been able to make of myself. I say I turned myself over to God, but that's not entirely accurate. It's more correct to say that I was turned. That is, for all those years, I'd gotten it precisely backward. I had believed that I must choose God in order to be loved and to choose him every day in the way I live my life. But the reality was that God's love chose me. In that instant, on the precipice, the world right-sided itself. And I trembled as the foundations of my life fell out from under me, only to discover that I was standing for the first time on solid ground. Nearly three centuries ago in Middletown, Connecticut, a poor, semi-literate farmer named Nathan Cole experienced a, a similar gospel epiphany that Katie Langston describes. In October 1741, Cole heard a a sermon by the Methodist preacher George Whitfield, and he later recorded the effect of the gospel on him in his diary. He wrote, To me, this is what it means to be a Christian. My hearing Mr. Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken and turned upside down. I saw not only that my sins condemned me, but that my righteousness could not save me. And I understood finally that if Christ is everything, then I have nothing to bring him. Indeed, to come to him with this nothing that is by faith only, to come to him with this nothing is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Notice, he didn't say he heard the gospel and thought to himself, I'm going to have to get my act together now. No, what he said was, I stopped trusting myself. I ceased trusting in in whatever good works of mine own I've attempted to to, to add to Christ. That's what it means to be standing right side up. You see, it's not just our sins that come between God and us. It's our goodness. Christ has already taken our sins away. They're not the problem. It's holding on to our goodness, thinking it does us any good at all that keeps us living upside down in a world that Christ has turned right side up. On the precipice between law and grace, the world right-sided itself, Katie Langston writes in her memoir. According to the Apostle Paul, According to Paul, the the problem with those who want to add some obligation other than faith to the gospel, the problem with those who pervert the gospel into a Christ plus commandment-keeping gospel, mixing the gospel and muddling it with the law, the problem with those who want to add to the gospel is that they're insisting on living upside down in a world that Jesus Christ is already right-sided. After all, the Bible says, The entire purpose of the law is to impress upon you your need for a Savior. I mean, think about it. You can't possibly keep every one of the Old Testament's 613 commandments without being confronted every day by the reality that you cannot do it all, that you are not righteous, that you need a Savior. 
That's why Jesus locks all the exits in his Sermon on the Mount and says that if you've even lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. He wants to hit you with the truth that you have no hope other than a Savior. But you see, that Savior has come. That Savior has come, taking from you in his body upon the tree all your sins and gifting to you by the power of his resurrection all of his righteousness. And therefore, the purpose of the law has been satisfied. The reason for the overwhelming number of commandments has come and gone. It's not that the commandments have been annulled. It's that they've been fulfilled. The world's been turned right side up. And so, as the book of Hebrews puts it, the way to honor the law now is to refuse to treat it as religiously valuable. The way to keep the commandments now is to abstain from assigning them any saving significance. The way to honor all the oughts and shoulds of Scripture, including the law Jesus lays down, the way to honor all the oughts and shoulds is to require of believers faith alone apart from any ought or should. In other words, to require nothing. Christ has come. To believe that your obedience to the law is in any way necessary or even salutary. That it in any way makes you worthy or righteous. To think that that your good deeds, even in the slightest bit, atone for your wicked deeds. To think that way is to dishonor the law, Paul's saying. It's to refuse to stand upon the solid ground that Christ and him crucified has laid beneath your feet. You see, it's out of reverence for the commandments that Paul refuses to add them back to the gospel. It's out of honor to the law that Paul refuses to attach it back to his gospel. Christ has already come. The Savior has arrived. Therefore, the way to honor the law, the way to keep the commandments, the way to be holy is to do nothing but place your trust in Jesus Christ. And, of course, that brings us back to the precipice with our toes curled over the edge of heresy. Do we not have to do anything? There's a difference Paul wants us to see. There's a difference between must we and will we. I mean, Paul's aside in verse 10 today about remembering the poor is an indication. As a Christian, you will do many, 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 many things. You will find yourself confessing and repenting. You will forgive the very people you swore you never would. You will give to the poor and befriend companions you would never choose and engage in issues you once avoided. You'll also sin and self-justify and daily demonstrate your need for a substitute Savior. As a Christian, you will do many, many things. But to be a Christian, you must do only one thing. Nothing. Just trust in him And his grace for you. The man with the razor-burned chin and the red parka, he was here this Easter, too, for our outdoor service. I recognized him in the communion line. When I had placed the, the elements in his outstretched hand, he'd started to cry, and he said, Thank you. This is the body of Christ broken for you, I'd said. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Thank you, he'd said. 
Not amen, not thanks be to God, not even happy Easter or or Christ is risen indeed. Just thank you, he cried. Like I'd handed him an ice-cold bottle of Pilsner in the desert. And once again, he lingered long after the benediction, his tears glistening in the Sunday morning sun. Say, I said, for someone supposedly teetering on the edge of becoming Christian, how come I don't see you come around much? And he wiped his eyes on his sleeve. I've been coming and going from church nearly my whole life, he said. I learned quick that if I come on any ordinary Sunday, then chances are I'm going to be given something i got to do. Told who I should be other than the me that's me. But I learned, he said, if I only come on Christmas and Easter, if I only come on those two days, I've got a very strong chance of hearing nothing but good news. He shook my hand, still holding the empty plastic receptacle for the bread and the wine. And as he walked away, I looked on the ground around me, searching for the keys and coins that had surely spilt out of my pockets because he had just right-sided my world and set me back again on solid ground. Offer it to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.